Thanks everyone. Welcome to another day or Tuesday inquiry. Uh, we'll begin by enjoying the great opportunity to sit together.
Let's uh, chant the four practice principles uh, in the beginning today. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. There's a lot of people looking around. <laughs> it's so good to see all of you. It was wonderful to see so many people uh, also on Sunday. I know many of you that I see here were with us just a few days ago. Um, and in some ways, um, with this cl close proximity, um, I wanted to, t to sort of continue um, some of the things that were moving through me, but, but this will stand on its own. It's not as if you had to have been there on Sunday uh, to make sense of this, <clears throat> I hope. So one of the questions that I get so frequently from uh, students. Uh, but also it's a question that I live with all the time. I'm sure some of you must. Uh, in the face of everything going on around us, politically, uh, in the environment, uh, violence, uh, disasters, what do we do? Pretty straightforward. Any of you think these things? Only maybe with a few more expletives with it. What the heck do we do, you know? But this is, of course, uh, this is not difficult to see. This is our particular variant of the question that historically the young prince Siddhartha Gautama uh, met when he began um, his spiritual path. Uh, and it's said in the stories, you know, he witnessed uh, illness, old age and death for the first time that he had been protected and suddenly he was shocked. But that, that archetype of being, um, being shocked to see what we hadn't seen before. Like, really, this, this is what's going on. This is what people are doing. This is what's happening to the world. 
it was really shocking to him. And it's, uh, I know it's shocking to a lot of us. So he, of course, in the stories, he set out to, to answer his question, like, what do we do in the face of suffering? A, a, a little different way of saying it. How do we start a spiritual path that's going to help us know how to deal with suffering? So there's a warning sign that goes up right away because now he's embarked on a spiritual path. But you don't have to call it that. In fact, as you continue to read the Buddhist story, it said that he learned all the wonderful practices that he was taught, which were, were beneficial. But his the ultimate revelation, his awakening about suffering and going beyond suffering, came to him when he stopped striving and sat down. So this is just a little bit of a warning sign about getting too attached to spiritual because it it can very easily lead a lot of us. I mean, I, I was raised in a very, very traditional religious culture in the southern part of the United States. So uh, religion and spirituality had powerful uh, things. And I'm sure some of you uh, have similar or, or your own various uh, ways in which you've come to understand what it means to be spiritual or even religious, including those of you that didn't go to church but have equally strong feelings or antipathy uh, to those things. But to call something spiritual, it's very easy for it to then start um, see, seeming uh, elevated or distant, uh, far from your life or my life, uh, far away from just the moment. And I think we sometimes use it as a way to begin, or at least try to find a way to come to terms with um, this kind of shocking onslaught of everything changing so fast, being surprised, which we might call a groundlessness. We thought we had a foothold. We thought the floor would hold us. We thought the ground was stable. Um, so groundlessness is really an embodied experience of impermanence. And once this um, young prince, Siddhartha, was able to see the truth of the matter, he wasn't called the Buddha at that point, and he no longer tried to distance himself from his embodied life and all the messiness that he had observed when he left the protection of the, of the palace, he began to know that this was the only vehicle which can see clearly, which can feel deeply. This is the vehicle through which awakening occurs. Take care of the body. Take care of your breath. Awakening will take care of itself. And that may seem reassuring and relieving until the next time you watch CNN or heaven forbid Fox, you know, often we, we 
we feel like we just want to get away from it all, get out of the craziness to escape, uh, to bypass it, to transcend it. I know I do. It's like, get me out of here, but we can't because the undertow of reality is too strong and it's not a good idea to refuse the life that you've been given. And where would we go anyway? So the Buddha discovered through his own experience and his own practices that renunciation, trying to turn away from the body and all of its unpleasantness and impermanence, um, turning away from material life didn't shift him into some purified or elevated spiritual state. That, that, that was a, a, problem, a dualistic turn that he was offered and taught and practiced, but it didn't help. In fact, it almost killed him uh, as he ate very little and didn't take care of his body. Mortifications and ascetic practices damaged him. And he began to realize and taught uh, this teaching of the middle way that there's no way to get out of the swirl of samsara. You're not going to, you're not going to get out of this alive, basically. You're not going to get out of the swirl of samsara, of this um, everydayness of embodied life. But a fresh relationship with the everyday world can open doors to freedom. But on the other side of those doors, there's still everyday life. You don't escape and go into some new special world. The Buddha found that it was his view that was inappropriate. Reality was just fine. It was his view that was not clear. And there's more to this story, but you know, he discovered that Nirvana is not some distant place or some real special mental state where you're like high. Um, it's right here. Not some rare exalted place um, where you've finally gone beyond all the problems. And, and unfortunately, spirituality is often uh, portrayed as such. Like enlightenment, you're above it all. But if you go back to the Buddha's story and the final moments of his facing, his doubts and his fears and his challenges under that tree, what did he do? He touched the ground at the very end. He said, Nirvana is here. The koan, the story I spoke about on Sunday, just this is it. Because it, suchness or thusness, is just a shift in perspective. Your view changes. And then the natural state, our actual natural state, can reveal itself by the, the practices that we're engaged in, if they're wholesome. And we realize it's always been right here, right under our noses, right beneath our feet, in the midst of the whole catastrophe. Thusness or suchness, those unusual words, you know, refers to the, the nature of reality free from our conceptual elaborations and the sort of subject-object distinctions. Just, just this, just this. And when we are able to step into that 
that space, um, which is always here, available to us, we, we begin to realize that samsara isn't separate from nirvana. We chant in the Heart Sutra, form is boundlessness. Boundlessness is form. Not separating things artificially into spiritual and non-spiritual. That's the real non that that's the real duality. And the real non-duality is realizing this is it. It's all right here. We're not going to separate to good, bad, right, wrong, spiritual, mundane. But when you look around, you see that things are in a total mess <laughs> all the time. They've always been that way. And they've always been wonderful too. So in the face of the mess, we say, well, what can I do? What should I do? What's the right thing to do? And, and then I'm not going to scream it, but inside you do, don't you? Shouldn't somebody do something when you see what's unfolding? I read recently, I, I love this line, someone said, this is the practice of getting real, not getting happy. It's the practice of getting real. And our experience of reality changes as we practice with some constancy. So that the shift in view. So ultimately, we don't find necessarily a solution to things. Some things we can change, of course, but even when we're doing our best, but our, our practices turn toward it all, embracing it all, learning from it all, and discovering so much. There's a, a brief video that I sent around to a lot of students um, called The Paradox of Vulnerability. If you Google that, you can find it with Frank Ossetecki, um, who's written a, a good bit about um, working with people who are ill or even dying. And this was an interview he did at a conference. It's about 17 minutes long. It's not too long. Um, speaking about when he, then he had a series of strokes. And this is right after. And he said, you know, I'm not interested in recovery. Everybody talks about recovery. I'm more interested in discovery. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Now this, and now this, and now this. And from my old Baptist background, world without end, I'm in. It just keeps going, you know. Even holding to the idea that there's a spiritual path suggests we're trying to get somewhere. Somewhere else, somewhere better, calmer, pure, free from it all. But remember uh, Dongshan, once again, listening to Yunyan, when he said, when you're gone, what do I tell people was your teachings? And Yunyan said, just this is it. Where are you going to go? And it's so seductive to imagine a better place, a better life, a better <clears throat> everything. But this is what we have to work with. This is the actual path. And it, it leads back here. It doesn't take us somewhere else. And turning toward each thing is the practice. 
of responding and caring for our lives and caring for each other. And the result is some peace here, not in the special new world that we create. Some of you are probably familiar with the um, imagery that Pema Chodron uses when she said, you know, sometimes in our spiritual practices, we, we end up like a hothouse plant, only able to thrive in a very specific little environment where everything is just right. We have our meditation room just right and the right incense and we've had the right tea and our cushion is just right. And, you know, no, nobody's bothering us and um, the cat is not sitting in our lap, whatever it is. So this is the way we sometimes think about spiritual life. If we just set it up just right and no one messes with our setting, then we can be okay. But you can see this is all very um, elaborate, conditioned phenomena attempting to invite us into the unconditioned. This is a manager approach. <clears throat> this is coping, not freedom. This is a narrowing down to try to find our little special spot, not opening up. This is setting up a personal view of an awakened life rather than discovering wakefulness as our life. Dogen said it this way in the Ginjo Koan. Some of you are familiar with this passage. And once again, it's Dogen's language, so it's a little bit unusual. Just let it flow through you. He said, when you find your place where you are, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. When you find your way at this moment, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. For the place, the way is neither large nor small, neither yours nor others. The place, the way is not carried over from the past, is not merely arising now. He said, accordingly, in the practice enlightenment of the Buddha way, meeting one thing is mastering it. Doing one practice is practicing completely. Here is the place. Here the way unfolds. And then, in case you wondered, he goes on later to say, do not suppose that what you realize becomes your knowledge and is grasped by your consciousness. Although actualized immediately, the inconceivable may not be apparent. Its appearance is beyond your knowledge. It's here, and finding your place here opens up the fundamental point of practice. And what opens doesn't end up being something that you now have that you can make yours. And we really want all of this to make sense. We want to understand, and you want me to help you understand. <laughs> so maybe that better way, that better state of mind, your better life will somehow manifest because you come to inquiry or done whatever. And when it does, then you want to make it yours. Something we can understand, something we can own and have, but that's not where freedom and liberation lies. Liberation is letting go of ownership and grasping. That's what's liberated. And there's no need to step onto a, like a spiritual path that will lead to something new and special. Step towards yourself. Return to your own heart. Dogen called it taking the backward step. 
to your own body, your own heart, your own mind, into your own relationships. Discover freedom here. And my favorite line in the Xin Chen Ming, old Chinese poem, where it says in the middle of quite a long discourse, don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. And for a lot of us, our strongest opinions are about the spiritual life. You know, Suzuki Roshi didn't talk very much about enlightenment because he said it was his biggest disappointment. And I've heard other teachers, teachers say the exact same thing. Like, oh, you'll have moments of awakening. It'll be really disappointing. But what gets disappointed? All of this longing and striving. Sure, all of us are going to have moments of uh, boundlessness and awe. And I hope you do. I'm, you already have. That's not actually that hard. What drops away is mainly the self-generated and self-centered drama. Because awakening is boring. Because there's no drama. It's boring to the part that wants it to be yours and special and unique. Instead, you may be standing there as you might on the edge of the Grand Canyon or in the face of the wind coming from the North Sea when you're in the Lake District or wherever you are with awe, with your mouth open and your eyes open, not being able to say anything. But that's not drama. That's profound intimacy. And by the way, a student asked Suzuki Roshi one time why he didn't talk very much about enlightenment in Mitsui. His, his wife was standing next to him. And she said, that's because he's never had it. And she hit him with her fan. <laughs> so a little drama, but that's another story. There is no attainment of enlightenment. Just stop being deluded. Awakening is the negotiation of delusion. That's what you get awakened about. That's what gets enlightened is delusion. You have no delusion, no realization. It's required. And most of us have plenty of it. There's another piece in the Genjo Koan, which I really love, where Dogen says, those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. I could have just said those two lines and not you know, talk for the last 15 minutes, but, but we have to have a background for it, you know? And then he goes on, he says, further, there are those who continue realizing beyond realization, who are in delusion throughout delusion. They keep opening, 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 and going deeper and deeper into delusion. They get rid of it. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily notice that they're Buddhas. However, they are actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddhas. It's the function of inviting others into wakefulness that's their function. So, and come back to everyday life here for a moment. What should I do in the face of helplessness and hopelessness? That's where we started, right? What the heck do we do? And I'm not going to go into a lot of it, but 
some of you who have psychological training know that there's quite a bit of research in, about uh, learned helplessness. Um, started with animal studies, we don't have to go into it, but if animals are given a, a mildly unpleasant situation that they can escape from, they do so. They're smart. In the studies in which they're unable to get away, eventually they give up and they stop. They either become very passive and don't do anything anymore because they have given up, they've learned to be helpless, or they turn to aggression. If mice in a community are given a maze to get rewards, cheese and food, and they learn to do it very rapidly, they're good at this, and then if the, if the reward is moved or taken away, they do what they learn to do, and there's nothing there. So they go back and they start over, and they go back and they start over. And after a little while, they come back and attack the other mice. Not a bad model for America right now. I don't know about the UK. But either give up or attack each other. And human studies uh, were quite similar. We don't have to go into all the research, but <clears throat> but um, Martin Seligman, who is the primary researcher on this, um, I want to just name three things because it maps onto our discussion of delusion here. They propose that subjects who are participating in the situations where they learned helplessness, when they don't have control, and this is the, what we feel, we don't have any control. You watch this stuff playing out and it's like, what? And he said, there are three deficits that happen. This is the clinical language, motivational, cognitive, and emotional. And I'll say something about this, three deficits. The cognitive deficit refers to the subject's idea that the circumstances are uncontrollable. We have a, we take on a view. The motivational deficit refers to the subject's lack of response to potential methods of escaping a negative situation. Give up. Finally, the emotional deficit refers basically to depression, which arises when the subject is in this negative situation and they feel like there's not any control. So now let, all we have to do is shift deficit for delusion. Number one, a cognitive deficit, uh, the idea that things are uncontrollable. This is delusion number one, the cognitive delusion. Circumstances are uncontrollable. Becomes reality is not workable. And our practice restores this. The second one, motivational deficit. You, you learn to be helpless. You don't have any motivation to change because nothing work, nothing makes any difference. So the motivational delusion. You can't escape life, that's true. But you can always practice no matter what the circumstance. And there are people who will be with you. And three, the emotional deficit, essentially depression that goes with this. That's delusion number three, the emotional delusion. Believing number one, circumstances are uncontrollable, reality is unworkable, and number two, I can't escape things, results in helplessness or suffering or the first noble truth. Dukkha is real.
There is suffering. There's not going to change or go away. And our reactions to dukkha cause suffering to arise. Second noble truth. But you can do something. You can soften your demand that life be different. The demand, and it's a demand that we carry, that life be different. You learn to face the fearful perception that it's unworkable and find some life there. And you can stop demanding that life meet your expectations and turn toward the life that you have and see it as the curriculum for awakening. You can, as they say in the Lotus Sutra, polish one corner of the universe. And we can learn to just stop making things worse. So I'll end, as I often do, um, with a poem. Uh, so it'll bring us around to a heartfelt sense of this, I think. Uh, it's from Jane Hirschfield. Uh, some of you know, as a wonderful poet and trained at Tassajara in, in our lineage. And um, this is a poem that she wrote right within the first uh, days and weeks of the pandemic. So it's a couple of years old. So that's the context you have to understand. And the title is Today When I Could Do Nothing. <clears throat> I think here, let me share this so you can see it because sometimes it goes in a little better if you can read it along with me. Now, did that come up for you? Okay. Today when I could do nothing. Today when I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in with the morning paper, still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is still an essential service. I am not an essential service. I have coffee and books, time, a garden, and silence enough to fill cisterns. It must have first walked the morning paper as if loosened ink taking the shape of an ant. I love that. <laughs> then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion, a small ant, alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that's what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have again found again its nest. What then did I save? It did not move as if it was frightened, even while walking my hand, which moved it through swiftness and air. Ant, alone, without companions, whose ant heart I could not fathom. How was your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. This first day when I could do nothing, contribute nothing beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this. 
I did this. Today, when you feel like you could do nothing, moving steadily in practice because that's what you can do. What ultimately do you save after all, you know? And yet we come to each other here today with, a, with companions and, and, and say, how is your life? So what does this call forward for you today? These are, these are my reflections on what the heck do we do in the face of all these things? And maybe sometimes you just do one small thing in our small world, uh, not knowing what the reverberations will be. You know, I like that question in the poem. So what did I save? You know. So I have a, a request if you don't mind too much. Um, Margaret, is it okay if I ask you to raise your hand? Margaret Keys, um, you see her chest? She'll unmute herself. There you go. I'm just so glad to see you. And I thought, uh, speaking about these topics, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about it. I'm glad. What's, what's I am. What was coming to mind that was so interesting at that poem was amazing. Because um, it is how I feel uh, when you bring up our helplessness. And what I've been experiencing of late is um, my family, which has all these grandchildren and great-grandchildren and has been fairly chaotic. Uh, and in a way, for years, I kind of tried to distance from it because I didn't want to get pulled into all the drama. But of late, <clears throat> last few years, I've realized how important it is to turn and be with in a very different way. And so recently, when school started, I have a 14-year-old who's going into high school. And we have opened our communication, which mostly is by text. But I found that the aunt piece uh, was when he wrote me, I said, how do you feel about the first day of school? And he wrote back and he said, I'm scared. And I thought that was the blessing of the day. It was like saving the aunt. It was like that we'd finally gotten to this place in our communication with this 14-year-old that, um, that we have something deeper that goes on, even when it's a teenager. But it was kind of what I could do to take the aunt and put it outside to meet that 14-year-old fear. And um, I think that's what I'm seeing more and more in the helplessness of today is what's in front of me, 
how do I squeeze the love out of the situation um, and get myself back, you know, centered when I get freaked out? Well, and part of what I hear too, you've cultivated a relationship with this young boy. Yeah. Such that a 14 year old would say, I'm scared. That's not amazing. Yeah. That's, that's it. And, and then if you, it's okay if I say, and you just return from a dear friend who's struggling. And yeah. so you face that too. And, and, and we see ourselves reflected in these things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More and more, I see kind of just the circle going round and round. And then when it stops, who's in front of you, you know, kind of like musical people or musical situations. <laughs> That's yeah. what it feels like here sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it's so wonderful to tune in and see everybody. Um, I love that. I love knowing the faces, but also not knowing the faces. So that that's a wonderful thing. And thank you, Flynn. Thank you for calling on me. Yeah, I, sometimes I want to talk to, to folks. Yeah. You. Another person I wanted to speak to um, as I was looking was um, Catherine Ellis because I haven't talked to her in a long time. And uh, now, do you see her, Jessica? We have to, if you raise your hand by the little icon, she can find you. There she is. Uh, make sure you unmute. There you go. I was watching your face as I was speaking, so I kept thinking of you. Thank you. It's hard to speak. It brought up uh, the reaction, the same reaction as the other Jane Hirschfield poem, uh, Cedary Fragrance, mm. which I held on to. <laughs> means a lot to me. The ant brings up a kind of feeling of great tenderness. Mm -hmm. and and something that in me that wants to say i know this is true that mm -hmm. yes. the choosing of the life you have that isn't dramatic or <laughs> necessarily very interesting but it it becomes interesting viewed from the perspective of I saved the ant or the ant was saved. Yes. Because it's what you could do. Yes. That's really all yeah. it is. And there are plenty of times with, with Margaret and with you where we've had great fun. It's not, I hope people <laughs> don't read this as uh, somehow <laughs> no drama means no joy <laughs> at all. No. No. no drama is but, uh is a yeah. painful thing but you know please have every uh, margaret talk about squeezing the love and also squeezing the joy of every single thing dramatizing um, is about yourself joy is about the, the meeting of everything yeah i think that's thank you i've that. done plenty of dramatizing in my life to know the difference <laughs> we've all had <laughs> enough uh, teaching yeah and yeah. How, is it okay if i ask how is john yeah, well, he's it's 
slowly declining. Aren't he still himself? Yeah, well, I feel a great tenderness as I speak to you, thinking of him. He, he still has that graciousness and kind-hearted quality. Yes, well, he's a wonderful man. And I see in the calligraphy behind you from Thich Nhat Hanh, this is it. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I think the, the thing I've realized in practicing choosing the life I have <laughs> is how much it how much the choice if it's really sincere <laughs> brings up the shadow brings up a shadow mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask you I've been wondering about asking you that so the, the things that one doesn't have seem to become more powerful more alluring uh, more susceptible to fantasy, i.e. delusion. So that's where I am. I'm choosing the life I have and I'm experiencing being with the shadow of it. Yeah, and the longing and the grasping that comes with it. L the longing for it to be different. Of course, of course, You're human. And that's part of what keeps us going. That's kind of the, the, the fuel. Um, in that beautiful Stanley Kunitz poem, Touch Me, he says, desire, 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 that makes the engine run. <laughs> uh, it's not just about graphic, it's, it's that this, um, yes. it, it, it's that there's a wholehearted, beautiful aspiration in it. And yeah, the ego can grab it and make it into yeah. shiny objects and uh, beautiful things and great travels and all that. But there's, it is life force, really. It's just life force. Yes, it doesn't have to be seen. Yes, it doesn't have to be seen as negative. But yeah, I, I, I get that. I see that. Yeah. yeah, but those of us who were so steeped in the concept of sin, we get, it gets edgy, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's oh, a very is... hard uh, construct to break, actually, it turns out. <laughs> Yes, and, um, and thank God. It's more, more subtle as time goes on. <laughs> more, <laughs> more subtle aspects of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's part of why I called on you too, because I thought about you, but also I appreciate the depth of your, your practice and the depth of our time together over those so many years. So. And I appreciate the depth of our connection. Thank you, Flint. See you in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. No, Cassie. Um, I guess first I really want to just like do a full bow to the shift that occurs in all these meetings for me. Um, it's you know it's just something that I deeply notice each time. Okay. Yeah, it's important to enact it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Me too. This is my practice. Uh, so I can keep shifting and opening. It's my edge. Uh, 
And then just how much I adore Margaret Keys. I just <laughs> so much Margaret love. Uh, and how Scrabble got us through COVID. Um, but the the other reason I wanted to raise my hand is uh, when you said uh, uh, groundlessness and impermanence. And I I noticed that like impermanence and impermanence is one of my favorite things to work with. You know that that that's got a lot of juice in there for me. Um, but I I I've always like avoided groundlessness. I'm just like groundlessness bad. You know I have you know like right here beside me I have my little turtles and because I I identify as like moving slowly and. Uh, I feel like, the, you know, the turtle finds the ground and then moves on. But the idea that groundlessness was a part of impermanence, like, I, I got all confused there. Yeah, I, I said it, groundlessness would be the, uh, the sort of embodied experience of impermanence. Ah, okay. Impermanence is a little bit conceptual. I mean, we can see examples of it. You know, you wouldn't have claymation without impermanence. Right. I mean, the whole thing. <laughs> well, that's all it is. Right. It's an illusion of, of permanence through impermanence. And that form is always changing. Uh, but but wait, wait, say your thing again, because I was off in my thought. I don't remember what I said. <sighs> okay. Well, I'll look it up in the recording. Yeah, you're going to be doing that anyway. So what I'm saying is when you're doing and those of you that don't know, she teaches claymation to kids so they can make movies, you know, with the clay, you know, how it... So the, the appearances of these things act and transform and move. And, and so what, uh, and with all the clay things, where's the ground? What's the part that doesn't move? Well, technically I would say the lens, the camera, what, what's viewing, but that's, I don't think that that's what you're getting at. It's like the clay itself is the same. It just changes forms a lot. That's groundlessness. Okay. And the and the view from your actual primary awareness, not your awareness, awareness is the lens. Yeah. I can I can I can grasp that like for seconds. That's good. Seconds is good. Been really thankful for the recordings because I know that I'm going to come back to this and try and like hmm grab it especially the, um, because of the the uh, i almost say old now dslrs and because it's a mirror this luminous mirror wisdom there's a mirror yeah it goes through the lens and it's reflected yeah that's your primary awareness and the sensor against which that light finally hits that's your heart Yeah. And the image then is impressed in your body. Uh-huh. But it's always changing. So it doesn't have a ground that is ever stable. Yeah. Enough to chew on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you. And I'm saying this in front of everybody. Thank you, Cassie, for making sure these... Uh, the videos get posted. She does all that hard work. Yeah.
Thank you. And in a few minutes, oh, Nelda, okay. Hi, Flint. Hi. Um, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. I'm, I'm going to get on a plane and go over to Honolulu and visit my dear friend Bronwyn and full um, time together. So That's wonderful. So I came forward. First of all, Cassie, I adore you. You are so real and so beginner's mind with such wisdom and groundedness of, or groundlessness, however you want to describe it. She's um, irresistible, isn't she? Yeah, you're just amazing, Cassie. So bows, bows to you. Um, and I came forward for two reasons, because what was moving in me, and I mentioned it last night in depth in practice and practice and koan study with just this. So I'll start with the with that. And it was um I was listening to a Tara Brock podcast about moving into she labeled it happiness, but I feel like I, I that word's not something I like. I feel happiness is a construct. And she described a meeting between, I didn't know this at the time, Becky um from Vancouver. Um said that this was actually described in a book where the Dalai Lama is sitting with Desmond Tutu and there's a reporter there recording this information. And the reporter asks um, the Dalai Lama, what was the happiest time of your life? I'm sure you can guess the answer. So he gets a little twinkle in his eye and smiles and says, right now, <laughs> you, this is the happiest time of my life. And so that relates to just this. Um, but the ant story really moved me because it moved me to make this statement. What can we do? Sometimes what we can do is not what we had hoped or imagined. And that too is enough. And what I call to mind is when Lori had a week-long intensive not, not long ago, I was, I don't remember the right name, so I'm just going to tell you what I was. I was the food lady, right? I was the one who that set up the tea table, and I wanted to make it perfect and elaborate with variety and all of that. The Zen and, food truck. I'm, yes, the Zen food truck. And so I felt like that's what I was to do. But at some point in the intensive, I realized what I really was to do was this. We have lots of ants in the Zendo, and we... I don't, but some treats for them so that they don't harm the humans who come in there. And I was sitting in Zazen at one point with my eyes lowered, and one of the ants had gotten into the bait, and it was dying in front of me. And I couldn't save it, but I could sit with it. Mm -hmm. I could let it know that it mattered and that my heart was with it. And then when Zazen was over and it had died, I could carry it out and put it in the hands of that little Buddha statue by the kitchen door. And that was enough. I couldn't do what I wanted to do, but I could do something. And it's enough. It's enough. Yeah. I drove to the east end of our island on the weekend when I had some time because I wanted to just take a Sunday drive, literally. Because I can look across and I can see Maui. I can see Lahaina. I couldn't do anything. But I could bear witness. Mm -hmm. I could just sit on the rocks and let the wind blow and the waves crash and just look. So. Yeah, thank you. So I see it's the uh, the end of our time. So now let's um, 
invite the um, the verse of the robe uh, as a as a final chant. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being.